Maybe there'll be something that God puts on your heart that you'll want to pray about. Maybe somebody's just shared a need with you just there that you could just pray with them at the end and that would really bless them. So we're going to turn to Revelation chapters 12 and 13 and Fizzy's going to read that for us and then Will's going to preach. Page 1241 in the Pew Bible, if you want to follow it. The Woman and the Dragon. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for a thousand two hundred and sixty days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who'd given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. 
the beast out of the sea. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he'd given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. The beast out of the earth. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast, so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. Here ends the reading. Before I start, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we cannot begin to understand this revelation without the power of wisdom and revelation that is given to us by your Holy Spirit. So we ask that you would bless us now 
by pouring out your Holy Spirit on us, that you would enable us to understand what this message is. And Lord, I do pray that the words that I speak that are true from you would lodge in people's hearts. Those that are simply of me would be lost as soon as people leave this building. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you, Andrew, for allocating this, uh, these two chapters to me. And welcome to tonight's sermon, which is part of a series on the book of Revelation, which has been quite a challenge, but I must say a very enjoyable challenge to have to preach from. Tonight's uh, sermon covers two of perhaps the most frightening chapters in the whole Revelation, and indeed the one single verse that has, I think, probably spawned more discussion than any other verse in this book. Chapter 11 of the book of Revelation concludes with a reference to judging the dead, rewarding the servants of God, and opening God's temple in heaven. Although the scenario would make a fitting end to the book, John still has more to reveal to us. And I'm going to look at each chapter by turn, first of all by looking at who is involved, then looking at what the visions represent, and then when I've done that, I'm going to uh, spend the other part of the sermon uh, concluding by looking at some application points. And um, I have found such a rich seam of application here. I've just spent so much time trying to prune it all down, but it's quite an amazing passage, this. And just to highlight how important revelation and scripture is in general, let me share this with you. A new minister was visiting homes of the church members, and at one house, it seemed obvious that someone was at home, but no answer came to his repeated knocks at the door. Therefore, he took out his business card and wrote Revelation 3.20 on the back of it and posted it through the letterbox. When the offering was processed the following Sunday, he found that his card had been returned. Added to it was this cryptic message, Genesis 3.10. Reaching for his Bible to check the verses, he read Revelation 3.20 begins, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Yeah, good, I got the right one, he thought. And then he looked at Genesis 3.10, which reads, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid, for I was naked. So Revelation is important. Um, I'm afraid that's the only light humor you're going to get tonight. It, It gets quite heavy hereafter. Now, Sean explained in, the first, in his opening um, sermon of the series that the book is not to be taken literally and it's not to be taken in chronological order. And we must understand that whilst it looks at the future, it also looks at the past. And some of what we might think are predictions have in fact already occurred. And chapter 12 can be characterized as a flashback telling of the birth of the Messiah and the attempt of King Herod to kill Jesus soon after he was born. But in character with other parts of the Revelation, there is persecution, conflict, victory, and celebration. So let's start by looking at who's who in chapter 12. And we have three chief characters, a pregnant woman entering labor, the male child she bears, and an enormous red dragon crowned with, uh, with seven heads, crowned with ten horns. Now the male child is obviously the Messiah, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. There is no doubt as to the identity of the dragon, because since John refers to him in verse 9 as that ancient serpent called the devil and Satan. And it's the devil's eagerness to devour the child that explains the violent opposition that Jesus 
uh, met during his earthly ministry. It all began with the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem and culminated when he was crucified outside Jerusalem. The identity of the mother who gives birth um, can be interpreted in different ways, and I'm not going to spend uh, very much time on this, but a popular Roman Catholic interpretation is that she is the Virgin Mary. However, I don't uh, follow this as Mary was not persecuted as this woman is. Far more likely that the woman is not an individual, but a corporate image of the church, both new and old, and a symbol of the people of Israel. So, that's who's who. Let's go on to the three sort of visions. Now, the first vision is of the woman, the child, and the dragon in verses 1 to 6. It is really quite a horrific picture, isn't it? The dragon standing over this woman, determined to devour her child the very moment he's born. And if you think that's unlikely, just think of King Herod's reaction when he heard what the three wise men were up to and why they had come to Bethlehem. That's exactly what he was plotting to do then. But the good news is Satan is thwarted. The son is snatched up to God and his throne, and the woman flees to the safety of the desert. And then to verse 7 for our next vision, which is a frightening picture of a cosmic battle. This really is the stuff of science fictions with angels and demons battling it out. But, uh, of course, the end is not in doubt. Uh, Satan is defeated and tumbles down to earth. And the dragon is uh, apparently angered by his failure to kill the newborn Messiah, engages in this cosmic war with Michael and his angels. You can just imagine, you know, he's failed in his primary purpose, so he's lashing out at everyone else. The dragon's defeat and eviction from heaven are the cause of great rejoicing by the remaining heavenly dwellers in verses 10 to 12. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. He triumphed. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb. That was the blood of the Lamb that was shed on the cross. And so the vision of Michael fighting the dragon is symbolic, representing the real victory won by the atoning death of Christ. The last verses in the chapter are a vision that that shows Satan's persistent and continuing hostility against the church and the persecution of the faithful. And John charges the devil with a primary responsibility for initiating it. So I know that's a very quick skate over chapter 12, but I'm going to push on to chapter 13 now. Uh, In this chapter, two of Satan's agents appear, and these two, along with the dragon, comprise a counterfeit trinity. One is a frightful beast rising out of the sea who's given power by the dragon. Now, most commentators believe that this beast symbolizes the Roman uh, Empire, which in John's day was the embodiment of Antichrist, a world power in in, in persecution and opposition to the reign of Christ. Perhaps out of the sea, because that's the way um, the Romans projected their military might in the Mediterranean via a vast navy. And we're told that the beast opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God. And in verse uh, 6, 
revile, reviling his name. And we do know what this means, because beginning with Julius Caesar, Roman emperors had been deified. That is, they were given the status and worship due to a god. The early ones, only after they died, but later emperors, even during their lifetime. And Suetonius tells us that the emperor Domitian required that people addressed him as our Lord and our God. In most of the cities to which John was writing, temples had been built to these deities, a mockery of the one true God. Satan had deceived and led astray the whole world to believe that lie, the lie that the emperor was God. But what of the second beast that comes out of the earth? This is the beast that had the authority of the first beast. Um, I didn't know this. Um, I've, I think I've been drawing on about six different commentaries, and it was fascinating to read that uh, many agree that this beast symbolizes, that, uh, symbolizes the high priest of proconsular Asia. And the high priest was an Asian dignitary who officiated in the ceremonies of the emperor cult. Remember, they were calling the Roman emperor God, and so presumably they had to have priests to conduct all the liturgy and the worship. And this was the main man. He was in charge of all these large gatherings. And it was the role of this beast, the high priest of Asia, to make the local inhabitants bow down, to submit to the first beast, the Roman emperor, in, in acknowledgement of the power and authority of the empire. And it's interesting reading that he uh, was able to exercise miraculous signs and wonders, that apparently the practice of sleight of hand and trickery by pagan priests to overawe the gullible assembled was common in antiquity. And actually, thinking about it, isn't that what happens in Exodus when Pharaoh's magicians counter some of the miracles that Moses is performing? And so he really was clearly a false prophet and deceived many people. And to the end of chapter 13, what does John mean when he writes that everyone was forced to receive a mark on his right hand or his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless they had the mark? What is the significance of this number 666, which has spawned so many films and books. I mean, if you Google 666, as I confess I have, just in case somebody reports me to the vicar, my internet search logs that they're worried that the curate is uh, involved in Satan worship. Uh, it is staggering how much there is out there when you type in 666. Um, well, you know I'd like, I always like to show you something visual to try and keep you awake and interested. And tonight I do have a little slideshow. Um, it comes with quite a, a health warning, um, but you're all grown up and you'll make your own uh, judgments on it. But I do hope you can read the letters as they come up. Uh, I'm going to have it stopped early because it, it does go on a bit. I'm going to have it stopped at, at the two-minute point when it says, is that a coincidence? Andrew. This is 2004, I should say, this, this one came out. There we go. Well, if you are a dispensationalist and treat the book of Revelation literally, I think you will have found that very interesting and food for thought as you leave here. Personally, I think it is uh, a wild bit of extrapolation and rather far-fetched.
but who knows? I'm joking, by the way. I'm joking. <laughs> almost, no, I think the reality is almost certainly for reasons of security, John does not give the name of the Roman emperor. He does, however, give his number, 666. The emperor Nero was the first persecutor of the church. Apparently, I haven't tried this, and even if I did try, I wouldn't do it because I don't, I don't know anything about Hebrew. But if you write out Nero Caesar in Hebrew, allocating uh, a number to each letter, you arrive at 666. I'm not going to show you how to do that. The other option, of course, is 7 is the perfect number. So 666 is the antithesis of the perfection of the number 777. But I think it's far more likely that the mark of the beast is designed to mock the seal that God places on his followers. And that was referred to uh, back in chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. Just as God marks his people to save them, so Satan's beast marks his people to save them from the persecution that Satan will inflict on God's followers. Identifying this particular mark is not as important as identifying the purpose of the mark. Those who accepted it show their allegiance to Satan, their willingness to operate within the economic system he promotes. And just listening to John Chambers there, it's, it, you know, that's what's going on out there, this economic system based on corruption and also their rebellion against God. And the refusal to take the mark commits oneself entirely to God, preferring death to compromising one's faith in Christ. Now, I am conscious that so far all I have done is impart some information to you to help you to understand these two chapters. What I have not done is to show you what lessons these two chapters have for us now. And so I'm now going to look at some points of application for us. Three points. The first one is very brief. John calls his readers to endure patiently the sufferings in loyalty to Christ. He does not shield them from the grim probability that faithfulness to Christ in the face of the emperor cult will mean captivity and death. Being a Christian is a life and death commitment in the face of an implacable and determined enemy. It was so then... And it is so now, although, thank God, not here. We must not expect to be spared from trials and tribulations if we are not to be swept away in the tide of secularist progressiveness. The second point. I think that if we had any doubts as to whether Satan actually exists or not, then chapter 12 effectively blows that out of the water. There is a classic line in the film, The Usual Suspects, where a, a police investig investigator says, the greatest trick Satan ever pulled was convincing people he didn't exist. It's comforting, isn't it, to think that actually, no, 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 there really isn't a, a devil. I mean, how could there be a devil, you know, dressed in red with horns and a, and a tail? We'd spot him a mile off. But don't forget, Peter writes in 1 Peter, that the devil is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 
And chapter 12 shows us the reality of the devil and the manner in which Christ's birth initiated the cosmic battle, which although Satan has been defeated, is still going on. John shows his readers that the oppression that they are experiencing is of satanic origin. The struggle is not merely against flesh and blood, merely against the local Roman and Asian officials, nor even against the Roman emperor. What they are resisting is the power and authority that has given those people authority. Satan, no less. They are resisting Satan. Nothing has changed. Now, we must be reassured that the battle has been won and Satan cast out of heaven. We must take encouragement that while Satan is enraged and continues to make war on the rest of us who obey God's commandments, we are protected, not physically, but spiritually. And there's uh, just what we've had read to us has this picture of the woman fleeing into the desert for a time where she is protected. Now, if you're still sitting there thinking this all sounds very far-fetched, Will's just egging up um, some viral PowerPoint presentation that was sent out in February 2004. Listen to what Jill Ireland writes from Ethiopia. Do I believe I've been rescued and redeemed from the dominion of darkness? Am I rejoicing today knowing that God has brought me into the kingdom of his son? These are just a couple of the questions I was asking myself recently after I had a very powerful and visual demonstration of the truth and the reality of that verse from Colossians in Ethiopia. A U.S. women's football team were on a two-week tour, and I was helping out with the team and their ministry activities. The team was accompanied by an Ethiopian women's football team to uh, a remote campsite in the Ethiopian bush for a few days of fun training and recreational evangelism. Sorry not recreational, relational evangelism. (laughs) I thought that sounded rather good fun. I I have a bit of that recreational evangelism. As we were all eating dinner, a couple of the Ethiopian female leaders were sharing the gospel with one of their unbelieving Ethiopian teammates when, as they touched her, she began to scream and shriek and become very violent as a demon began to manifest itself in her life. As you can imagine, for me and many of the U.S. girls, this was an unfamiliar scene, exclamation mark. The Ethiopian senior leaders, accustomed to such experiences, which are not uncommon uh, in Ethiopia and many other countries in Africa with animistic traditional religions and witchcraft practices, they were able to take the young woman to another room and begin praying for her deliverance from the demon possession. Meanwhile, the rest of us began to pray fervently, read scriptures and sing, knowing as we heard the shrieks from the next door room that a war was being waged for this young girl's soul. I was surprisingly confident and calm as I recall scripture and the knowledge of Christ's ultimate authority and victory over all things. Sometime later she emerged, calm and free, having given her life to Christ. She had passed from the dominion of darkness into the glorious kingdom of the Son. Powerful stuff, but real, very, very real. And new believers who are spiritually immature, believers who are spiritually weak, and those who are isolated from other believers are all especially vulnerable. And if that's you, seek help. Help comes uh, in from many places, but where best to start than in Ephesians chapter 6? 
where Paul tells us we must put on the full armor of God because of this spiritual battle. But that's a personal application. Far trickier is what do we do with this as a church? What ruse does Satan employ in chapter 13? The full frontal attack against Michael and to to devour the baby having failed. Well, he sends a beast who blasphemes and a second beast, a false prophet, who deceives the people with signs and wonders and is given the authority of the first beast. Are there false prophets in our beloved church being raised to prominence? Are those people deceiving the rest of the church? Are they creating a following of their own that is leading them away from the truth? Remember that we only have to be one degree off course, but after long enough, we will be far, far away from where God wants us to be. Remember this when we start to navigate the stormy seas ahead of the Anglican Communion. Don't think that it is just individuals we may end up battling against. Remember what power lies behind them, even if they are blissfully and completely unaware of it. My third application point. The real insight that lies behind the pictures in chapter 13 is that mankind is wired to worship some kind of absolute power. And if they do not worship the true and real power behind the universe, mankind will construct God for itself and give allegiance to that. And it's demonstrated nowhere more clearly than when Moses was off up uh, Mount Sinai and his people didn't have to wait long before they built the golden calf and worshipped that. Every man has his or her own God, whether that be the one true God or the God we have erected in our lives. It could be the God of success, materialistic gain, consumerism, whatever. And if you want to know what your own false idol is, look at the trail that leads from your wallet and your time, your diary, and see where it leads you. And it will lead you to whatever is the God in your life. And if it isn't Jesus, You need to take action now. Identifying false gods in our own lives is relatively straightforward. But what if we have been completely deceived? What if Satan has done such an amazing job on us that we just can't figure it out? We're in total ignorance. What if he's pulled off that greatest coup and deceived us into thinking that he doesn't really exist? The really frightening thing is that I believe we can be marked with the sign of the beast, not simply by worshipping the beast, but through our allegiance to what the beast stands for, and in consequence, by rebelling against God. And I say this is frightening, and I really have found it very frightening, because I think this can be done without any consciousness. Let me explain. I don't imagine there's anyone here who on a full moon has put on white robes, disappeared off to some old deserted churchyard, 
drawn a pentagram in the ground and started dancing round with a whole load of other similarly deluded people, performing some crazy act of satanic worship. I mean, of course, there are many people around who do that, but not here. But we all know that worship doesn't just mean coming to church and singing a hymn and praying and doing whatever you do in church. As Christians, our whole life is supposed to be one of worship. So what if our life, our job, requires us to do things that are in contravention to God's teaching? What if you're a lawyer and your company is advising on a land acquisition for a super casino? Where will you stand? If you're a teacher and you're required to teach something which you think is completely unbiblical, where will you stand? If you're a minister in our church and you're asked to submit to somebody's authority who you do not believe sticks to what you believe so firmly in, where will we stand? What if we're a politician and we're required by the whip to vote in a certain way that contravenes Christian teaching? Where will you stand? And if a minister, will we publicly announce the results of some uh, study? For example, I was told of one such person who, results, uh, who announced the results of some study looking at the links between violent video games and the people who play them being violent, who just said, well, the results may be conclusive, but I'm in no position to make any moral judgment on this. I mean, what does Satan want? He wants people just to go along, to go along as if it really didn't matter, abrogate all responsibility for making moral choices. Unless you think that on a personal basis you're okay, you are on course, what about on a national level? Will we know whether a government is antichrist? I suspect if one government was particularly evil, it would get voted out pretty quickly. In this country where we have a liberal democracy at least, I mean that is wishful thinking, but I... Hopefully that would happen. But what if Satan, who is this ultimate power over all of what is going on, what, is, what if he deceives us into thinking that a government is benign, even wonderful, a sort of saviour for all our economic woes, and undercover all sorts of attractive policies, slips in little things like, let's build lots of super casinos, and let me be clear, this may sound as though I'm knocking the Labour Party. It's a general point. It's just I can, I've got such a short-term memory, I, I can only remember the sort of the fairly recent policies. But, you know, let's build lots of super casinos in run-down areas, areas where there is social deprivation, so we can create more wealth. Who do they think they are kidding? We all know what happens when you build a big casino somewhere. It attracts all the people who can't afford to gamble to come in and gamble away all their money. Yet, that's what's coming in. What if we have a government who relaxes our policy on abortion? Anybody can get any number of abortions on demand. What about allowing children to be conceived without any direct involvement of a father? In the face of conclusive evidence 
which shows that children suffer fewer emotional problems and have a far greater chance of success in life when raised in a standard nuclear family. A government that allows human cloning. The rich being allowed to get even richer while the poor even get poorer. I read an article in a glossy magazine just the other evening about somebody who said, well, you know, I set up this business. If you're very, very rich, it only costs you £25,000 a year for our concierge service. And we're now branching out into property advice, because let's face it, if you want to buy a house in London for £25 million, they don't just come on the market very often. You need to be well connected. A house for £25 million. I know that we are all rich as Cretius in comparison with 98% of the world. But there surely has to be a time when we say enough is enough to this greed. Surely we have to have a time when a government says, listen, I think that's enough of this just repulsive richness in the world. When we have a world when millions of children starve in one part of the world whilst in another they die of obesity. Marriage is undermined and undervalued to such an extent that it actually ceases to make any practical worth or point whatsoever to get married. Are we going to sleepwalk into this nightmare world where we are deceived by the deceiver, by Satan, into thinking that what man off offers us, and you know, we voted, you know, we can vote these people in or out, when we're deceived into thinking that what they have to offer is better than what God has to offer. I suggest that if we risk veering away, even if it's just by one degree, we can end up a long way from where God wants us. Where will our allegiance be then? I hesitate to say this, and I may be wrong, and Andrew, feel free to stand up when I get down and say, Will, you're out of order, cancel just what he's just said. But my understanding of this passage is that by doing so, we all risk accepting the mark of the beast on us. The mark that shows that our allegiance is not to God. It's to someone else. And so I ask ourselves, will we stand like those early Christians did, the ones who are now with the Lamb dressed in white, or will we be deceived to bowing to whatever power confronts us now? Lord Jesus, let me pray now. Lord Jesus, thank you for showing us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Lord God, we pray. We pray for ourselves. We pray, Lord God, you would give us the strength to stand and be counted. You would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we would know when we were being deceived. And Father, we pray for our politicians, not just here, but all around the world. We pray for integrity. We pray for Indonesia. We pray against the corruption in, in that place. We pray, Lord, that you would raise up mighty leaders of integrity and godliness to put a stop to our sleepwalking into the arms of the dragon. Amen.
think about. Emails to Will, please, not me. Incidentally, if you want to make a, a, an opinion about the human embryology bill, which is going through, obviously, at the moment, there are postcards available at the welcome desk, I think that's where they are, which you can sign and send to your local MP.